Welcome to Outreach Church. Thanks for checking out this week's message. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or visit OutreachChurch.net for downloads and service information. You guys are always so encouraging to me. And to be honest, every week, there's not a week that doesn't go by, probably not a day that doesn't go by, that I don't thank God uh, for the people in this body of believers and that I don't think about how lucky I am um, to be called by Him to do what I'm doing. And and um, it's it's never a job to me. It's never my job. It's never, well, I have to because I'm a pastor. I think maybe that's what burns people out. That's what makes people not want to do it anymore, makes people get jaded or or all the things that you see a lot of people suffer with and talking to friends that pastor even is a lot of them get to a place where they feel like they have to because it's their job. And if I ever get to the day where I, I feel like I'm doing things, some, something because it's what I'm paid to do, I'd stop pastoring and, and, and I'd go do something else because um, I don't know that you can do what God calls you to do out of obligation. Even in our own lives, I don't feel like you can actually love people because you feel like there's an obligation to love people because you feel like God said, well, God said I have to love them. If you get to that place where you're only doing it because you feel like it's an obligation, even with giving, right? If we come to church and we only give because we feel like, well, it's an obligation, it's something I have to do, probably ought to not give that week and just go home and ask God, God, what's going on inside of me that I would ever feel like this is an obligation or a burden rather than a joy and a freedom and an opportunity? Um, so uh, as much as you guys say nice things about us, we say nice things about most of you all the time. I'm just kidding. We say that about all of you, and we're, we're really thankful for you guys. We know you guys pray for us, and, and um, I just, I really love getting to pastor this church, and I'm so thankful God placed me here with you guys. And um, we have so many amazing people in this church, and I'm, I, what Mark said is so true that Man, we really do need to just get to know each other and spend time with each other and, and really pour into each other's lives and pray for each other and, and sow into each other because you know how it is in life. It's like you go through these seasons and sometimes you feel like you're just everything's going your way, you know, and you're just so full of joy. And you may find somebody that right then is needing encouragement, you know, and you have that extra joy just overflowing in you and you just need to pour that into them and encourage them and, and be an encouragement and share testimonies of what God's done. It's so important for us to talk to each other about what God's done in our lives and what He is doing in our lives. And, and the power of telling somebody uh, uh, your story and what God's done for you is so, so powerful. Um, but get to know each other. Spend time with each other. Come to church a few minutes early rather than scraping in, you know, like just as the worship's starting or just as the worship's ending. And get to know some people. Find some people that you don't know and talk to them and hang out with them and spend some time with them and build relationship with them. Go out to eat with them. Take them out to lunch. Today when we go to the barbecue, don't just sit with a bunch of people that you know the whole time and not talk to anybody else. Go find some people that you don't know and, and say hey to them and find out their story and who they are. And I encourage you guys to do that. We're going to do something really neat at the... Um, at the cookout this afternoon, and we'll talk about that towards the end of the message. But, um, but I just want to say thank you guys for everything and, and for who you are as people and as a church. And, um, and we've been talking about covenant. And this is kind of the last message in this series on covenant with God. Although I, I don't know that there's ever a message that we preach if we're preaching Jesus that doesn't talk about the covenant that we have, because truly the covenant that we have with God is the basis for our relationship with him. It's the reason Jesus came uh, and lived the sinless life and died on the cross was to establish a new covenant, a new way of living in relationship with God. It was that he came and became sin on our behalf that we might become righteous. He didn't come and act sinful so we could act righteous. He actually became sin so that we could become righteousness of God in Christ Jesus that we could stand before God not knowing that next year I'm going to have to stand before Him and make another sacrifice because my actions during this next coming year are going to dictate how I stand before God. But it's knowing that from here to eternity, because of the sacrifice of Jesus, that I stand before Him the same yesterday, today, and for eternity because His blood covers everything that I've done. That the sacrifice was made once for all. It's the covenant that He came to establish. And so, uh, we, you know, we may talk about all kinds of things, but everything comes back to that because the relationship we have with God is a covenant. He established it was his idea. And, and part of that is that he never wants us to be separated. You know, we just saying there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Nothing, no height nor death. Um, or life or death, height or depth. That, that there's nothing that could separate us. And, and the reason why is because you're no longer who you were before you became born again. 
You know, it's like when, when you become born again, you're a new creation in Christ, that you're indivisible from Christ, that it's not me and then Jesus, that it's I and Him and Him and me, that we're indivisible or inseparable. That's why Paul said there's nothing that can separate us from His love is because we can't be separated from Him. And so like when me and Patty um, got married and, and we came together and we created Aaliyah, God gave us our, our daughter Aaliyah and He knit her together in, in Patty's womb. She is me and she is Patty. But as she stands before you that you can't divide her up and say, well, that's Roy and that's Patty. It's impossible to do that. She is a new creation and she's fully me, but fully Patty. And that's the way we are with God. It says that we are knit together. When you knit something together, it's not like you take two pieces of fabric and you stitch them together. See, because if you stitch something together, you can undo that thread, right? And you have the same two pieces of fabric you had before. But when you knit something together, it's interwoven so that it's one piece. It's no longer you can see where this one starts and that one ends. And this one starts and this one stops. And you could separate them. If you were to try to separate something that's knit together, you would destroy what it actually is. My wife knits me a hat. She doesn't start with two pieces of fabric. She starts with one piece of string and she knits it around itself and it's knit together. And if I was to try to cut that in half and say, well, I'm going to take half a hat and you take half a hat, the hat's ruined. It's not like a quilt where there's just a bunch of pieces and each piece is its own separately and then they're stitched together to become something more. It's actually that you are knit together, you're fashioned together. Just like Aaliyah was knit and fashioned in Patty's womb. And she's now inseparable. You can't take my part from Aaliyah or Patty's part from Aaliyah without Aaliyah ceasing to exist anymore. You can't take Christ from me or take me from Christ without me, the new creation born again in Christ, ceasing to exist. You're not just a fixed up you. You're not just the old version but a little bit better, hoping that one day when you die you become what Jesus died so that you could become. You are therefore now, if any man is in Christ, in covenant with Christ, he is now therefore a new creation. Behold, the old has passed and all things have become new. It's not the old you and the new you sewed together. And maybe if I just, you know, if I decide this Jesus thing isn't for me, I'll just kind of unwind that thread and I'll go back to being who I was. No, my life is now found in him and I'm inseparable from him and he's inseparable from me. And that's good news. That's the gospel. And so this whole thing of covenant is, and this is what God intended when He sent Jesus to establish this new covenant, was an inseparable, I would be in them and they would be in me. And so all the steps of covenant, from the exchanging of coats to the exchanging of names to to the walls of blood and all these things is all about us becoming one person with God and God becoming one with us. That, that That's the mystery that was hidden that's now revealed, that Christ is in us and it's the hope of glory to the world. Christ in you is the hope of glory. Why? Because when Christ is inside of you, He can reveal His love through you and the world sees who He is and how He loves and then they come to Him. That was Jesus' plan from the beginning was to reproduce Himself inside of people. He said, if, I, if I'm just here, it's just me. But if I go, I can send the Holy Spirit. Then there's a bunch of me walking around because the same Spirit that lived in me now dwells in each and every one of you. And so I'm reproducing Myself in you. That's why we represent Jesus to the world. Yeah. It was always His intention so um, in Exodus 12, we're going to talk a little bit about the old and then the new, and then we're going to go through some of the stuff that Paul wrote about, um, about communion, because I think that some of the verses that Paul wrote, if we don't have a right understanding of the way he was writing them, and we don't have a whole a look at the writings of Paul and the gospel of Jesus in general as we read these lines, sometimes they're a bit scary and sometimes they're a bit intimidating, right? And so um, I want to get to that. So in Exodus 12, starting in verse 1, it says, Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's households. A lamb for each household. Now if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them. According to what each man should eat, you are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that same night roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs along with its insides. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning. But whatever is left of it until morning, you shall burn with fire. 
Now you shall eat it in this manner. When your loins are girded, girded, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will go through the land on Egypt that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and of beast. And against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And this day is to be a memorial to you and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, you are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. God, I thank you for your word. I, I thank you that we can open up a book that we can buy in a store and you speak. God, I pray that we would never approach your word as, a, as just a book that we read, God, but that we would hear your voice, that we would see your heart, that we would see you. Even as we read the Old Testament, that we would see things that point to Jesus, that everything points to him. God, that as we hear from your word, that the Holy Spirit, you bring revelation to our minds, that our, our ears would be open to hear, our minds to be able to understand, our hearts to receive it and believe the word, that we would bear fruit, that we would be good soil. God, I thank you that every single one of us is being changed. God, that we look more like Jesus today than we did yesterday, and tomorrow we'll look more like him than we did today. God, that you are at work in each and every one of our lives. God, that we're being transformed from glory to glory. God, not from crisis to crisis, but from glory to glory as we discover who you are and who you've called us to be. I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So this was the Passover. This was when the Israelites were in Egypt and God had been trying to, to change Pharaoh's heart um, to let the Egyptians go. And every time Pharaoh would say they could go, then he would say, no, they couldn't go. And then God would bring a plague against Egypt. Coincidentally, every one of the plagues confronted one of their gods. They had gods of the river. They had gods of the sun. They had gods of the insects and gods of the frogs. And so God used the very things that they had made gods to bring the plagues against them. And finally, when, when he got to the end of it, he said, okay, then this would be the final thing that will, that will allow the Israelites to leave. I'm going to send the angel of death and he's going to come into the land and the firstborn from each household will be, will be killed. The first male child of each household will be killed tonight. And he said to the Israelites, he said, but not for you. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a lamb, a spotless lamb, one year old, and I want you to have it in your home and I want you to, to keep it there. And I want you to, on the night that I tell you, which is the night the angel is coming, I want you to bring it to the home and I want you to, to sacrifice the animal, to kill the animal. And I want you to take some of the blood from the animal and I want you to put it on the doorposts and on the lintel. So surrounding the door, which they would be outside performing this, and then they would put that inside the door. And he told them to do it with a hyssop branch. And they would take a branch and they would just splash the blood all over the doorway, on, from, on the sides and on the top. And he said, and then I want you to pass through that blood. And I want you to go into the home and I want you to cook and take in the lamb that was sacrificed and eat the lamb that was sacrificed. And I want you to eat it with unleavened bread. Unleavened bread because they were going to be in a hurry because they were supposed to leave. They didn't want them to take time and wait for the bread to rise. Also, leaven is always talked about by Jesus as something that would spread. It was in the New Testament. It's always legalism. When he talks about the leaven of the Pharisees, it's always the following of rules at the expense of relationship. When he told the disciples, be careful of the leaven of the Pharisees, he was meaning, be careful of those who follow rules but have no relationship with me. On the outside, they look great, but on the inside, there's nothing there. There's no life. There's no relationship. And so they, the Israelites would do this, and we talked when we talked about the walls of, of blood, how, how they, when they passed through there, they were passing through the walls of blood, and that, that when they were inside of the place where the walls of blood had allowed them to, to go, that they were safe, they were passed over. And we talked about how Jesus said, I am the door. No man comes to the Father except by me. And then as he hung on a cross with blood across the top of the man who called himself the door, and blood running down the sides of the man who called himself the door, that all who would pass through, like the Israelites, would pass through into a place where they are safe, where they, are dwell, where they would be a, a dwelling place that would cover them and keep them from the calamity and the chaos of the world around them, where God would see that and it would forever be a reminder to him of his promise to bless them, of the promise that he made to Abraham and to his seed, which is Jesus and all who are in him.
So as they were going into their house, they're entering into this place, and they would go in there and they would actually cook the lamb and they would make a meal. And think about this now, as we talk about everything that is old being replayed into the new and brought forward into the new covenant, they were actually taking in the very thing that was sacrificed to take away their punishment, to take keep them safe and to make them pure and holy in God's eyes and let them be passed over and not cursed. And as they went into the home, they were in that place, just like you and I are in Christ, and then they would actually take that same lamb and they would take it inside of them. And then Jesus in the New Testament prays, I and them and them and me. And you see God's heart for, for the relationship that He would have with people displayed, even in the Old Covenant, how everything is a picture and everything points to Jesus, that it's all about Him. It's all pointing towards Jesus Christ. And how there would one day come, behold the... Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How he would hang on a cross and there would be blood across the top and down the sides of the man who called himself the door and who would ultimately one day say, take me in you. And so you can see where we're headed with this, right? He would choose one lamb per family. Each family would choose a lamb for themselves and, and they, would, they, would, they would keep it and then they would, would go through this. And so it was on the tenth day of Abib. We find that out later when Moses is talking about it in, uh, in Exodus. He was talking about this. And, and God says, and I want you to do this once a year on this day as a remembrance of me, of what I've done, of how I've taken you from the hand of Pharaoh and I've delivered you out of the land of Egypt. When you see Pharaoh and you see Egypt in the Old Testament, it's always a picture of the enemy of this world and of the kingdom of this world. Pharaoh is always the enemy. The, the, Egypt is always the world. And so he says, I want you to remember how I delivered you from the enemy and out of his kingdom on this day. And I want you to do it once a year. And it was a memorial for God when they would get together this memorial meal, this covenant meal that they would share. Every time they would do this once a year, they would go through the same steps and then they would remember what God had done for them. And it would also cause them to remember what he had promised to do for them in the future. So this meal was important to them. It was huge for them. And they would every year they would take a lamb and that lamb would be sacrificed. And they would remind them of how God had promised to bring them out of the land and how he had blessed them as they went. Remember as they left, they were silver and gold stuffed into their pockets by the Egyptians. Who would have thought that the people who enslaved them would chase them and fill their pockets with silver and with gold as they were leaving? But God said, if you just trust me and obey me, I'll protect you and I'll provide for you. He didn't necessarily say how he would provide, right? Sometimes it was a man striking a rock with a staff and water comes forth. Sometimes it was manna raining down from heaven that they would gather and that they would eat. Sometimes it looked like the very people who had enslaved them and mistreated them, who hated them, who abused them, chasing them down and giving them their possessions and the wealth of the wicked being laid at the, at the foot of the just. And all the while, God's trying to teach them, just trust me and obey me. I'll protect for you and provide for you. That's always been his heart from the beginning. And so... They would do this and it would be a big deal. So we fast forward to the New Testament. We see this covenant meal. This is what they shared. This was the memorial meal. And they would take in the lamb once a year. It was something that had to be done concurrently. Every year they would go through the same thing. And it was passed on from generation to generation. And now thousands of years later, Jesus Christ is walking on the earth. The man who John sees and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And on the tenth day of that month, that same month, Jesus entered through the beautiful gate to the city of Jerusalem. And coincidentally on the tenth day, the lambs were passing in through the shepherd's gate into the temple. See, because now that they were no longer wandering, each family didn't raise their own sheep. Now they had settled in and some people were farmers, some people were, were um, sheep herders, some people were weavers, some were tanners, some were um, blacksmiths. So they had different jobs and responsibilities and each family didn't have its own flock of sheep anymore. So they had put into practice this thing where there was a, a flock of sheep that would be kept by the, by the priest's shepherds, by the temple shepherds, and they would keep this flock and they would take from them the spotless lambs once a year and they would herd them into the temple. And they would bring them in on that very same day that Jesus came riding in on a donkey. And they said, Behold, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. While Jesus is entering the front through the gate beautiful, the lamb is entering through the back through the shepherd's gate. And they're being brought into the priest to be examined for three days. For three days, the priest would spend examining these lambs and seeing if they were worthy sacrifice, if they truly were spotless, trying to find fault with them. And then they would sell them to the people so that the people who didn't raise their own lambs could have a lamb for their Passover sacrifice and their Passover dinner. And so at the same time as the Lamb of God is entering one gate, the Passover lambs are entering 
the back gate. That's yeah, pretty neat. Yeah, some of the stuff that, the, the historical stuff, um, I sit with Tom Snyder and we go over this stuff together and that was one of the things that, that he pointed out to me. I'm so thankful. He's another person in this church that I'm so thankful for. His, his wisdom and, and knowledge of biblical history is just, it amazes me. And, and I'll, I'll read the same thing as him and I'll come up with something totally different and he'll say, wow, that's awesome. And then he'll tell me what he got out of it and I'll say, man, that's awesome. And, and so then I just steal his stuff and you guys think I'm all awesome. <laughs> Turn to Matthew twenty-two fifteen. I just want to show some of the parallels that were going on during this time. So they would be brought in and they would be tested by the priests, right? By the, by the religious leaders of the day. The lambs would be tested for three days, inspected and tested to see if they were worthy. Matthew 20, 20, uh, chapter 22, verse 15. Remember what was going on in Jesus' life during the three days after he entered. Because something happened that changed from Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord to crucify him and let his blood be upon us and our children. Something happened, something changed in three days. During the three days that the lambs were being inspected, during the three days that they were being tested to see if they were worthy, Jesus was also being inspected and tested. Matthew twenty-two fifteen. Then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him. In what he said, and they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one for you are not partial to any. Do you see how it starts with flattery? When somebody comes to you and you know that what they're saying sounds good, but something doesn't feel right about what they're saying, be careful. Because so many times when they would come to Jesus and they were trying to trip him up and literally they were trying to get him to say something that would sentence him to death. This man was not really meaning any of the things that he was saying. He was saying these things to Jesus so that Jesus would feel comfortable speaking to him. He was trying to flatter him because that's the way the world works. If I can get you to think that I really love you and care about you, then I can lead you into a trap. And so many of the things that we find ourselves trapped with in life started out with something that looked like it was going to be so lovely or make us feel so good. And it was really trying to get him to say something that would cause him to be sentenced to death. The wage of sin is death. It's the enemy trying to flatter you, trying to make you feel like this is going to be great, this is going to be lovely, this is going to be awesome. And then the next thing you know, you find yourself in a trap, and the sentence of that trap is death, right? And so this is what they're doing to Jesus. So we know you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth. Why would you say that to Jesus if what you're doing is trying to get him killed because you don't believe what he's saying? Why would this man come to Jesus and say, we know that you're truthful and teach the way of God in truth. If they really believed he was truthful and taught the way of God in truth, then they would have believed him when he said, I am the way to the Father. No man comes to the Father except by me. But they couldn't believe that. Remember what they said when, when, they, when they sentenced him to death? It was for blasphemy because he claims to be the Son of God. If they thought he was truthful and he taught the way of God in truth, they would have believed him when he said that. They would have had no charge to bring against him. So here they come to lie and flatter him. Tell us what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their malice. See, there's something about the Spirit of God living inside of us that even though people are saying the right things, we know the heart and the intent behind it. And it doesn't make us hate them. It doesn't make us mistreat them. It doesn't mean we don't love them. But it does make us careful of why they're saying what they're saying. Our eyes have to be open. We are harmless as, as doves, but we're wise as serpents, right? That Jesus said to be this way, that we should be just as harmless as a dove. In other words, it doesn't matter if you're coming to me with bad intentions. I'm not going to harm you. But I'm also not going to let you harm me. Amen. And so Jesus perceived their malice and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? And over and over and over again, the priests and the religious leaders of the day would come and try to test him. And they didn't even know what they were doing. But everything in the old is mirrored in the new. And so while the lambs are being tested for three days, Jesus is being tested for three days by the priests and by the religious leaders of the day. Trying to find something in him. Trying to get him to speak something that wasn't truth. Because then he wouldn't have been the spotless lamb. And the very thing they were trying to get him to do so that they would leave him alone was the very thing he was incapable of doing and led to his death. Because all he would have had to do is answer one of their questions the way that they wanted and say that he wasn't who he said he was, and they would have left him alone. They wouldn't have been threatened by him anymore. But because he claimed to be the Son of God, they couldn't stand that. They couldn't accept what he said, and so for that, they wanted him to die. He says, why are you testing me? And so on the 14th day, 
Now the Passover lambs are being prepared. And it says, and Jesus' disciples gathered and prepared the Passover dinner. This was something that Jesus, who was a Jewish man, would have partaken every single year with his family. And now he was with his disciples, who were his family. So remember, who is my mother, who is my brother? They that do the will of my father. Right? So he's gathering with his family. And they prepared the Passover dinner. And so now, as things have progressed over time, the, the Israelites have come to a place where they're anticipating the return of the Messiah. And so at the table, they would have an empty seat and they would place bread, which they would now begin to use like three pieces of bread that would be, have stripes on them to represent the stripes on his back that the Messiah was going to take because it was foretold, right? In the book of Isaiah, he said, and by his stripes we are healed. He's broken, and they would break the bread because it was foretold that the Messiah's body would be broken. And so they would take that, those three pieces of bread, and they would put them there, and then they would take a cup, and they would fill it with wine, and they would place that at the table as well. And that was the table representing that there is a coming Messiah whose blood will be shed, whose body will be broken, who will establish this new covenant. And so Jesus walks in and he sits down at the place of the Messiah, at the seat of the Messiah with his disciples. And then in Matthew 26, 26, you guys, everyone knows this, these verses. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many as the forgiveness of sins. It says, Jesus took the bread and said a blessing. You ever wonder what he said? I used to, until I started researching it, right? He said, blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, the King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. This is still said today whenever Passover meals are observed by Jewish people. So he took the bread and he said a blessing. And we think that, you know, he blessed the bread, but he wasn't blessing the bread. He was blessing the giver of the bread. And he said, blessed are thou, O Lord, our God, king of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. So Jesus blessed God and then he broke the bread and said, take eat of the, this is my body. What was he saying to you? He was saying to them, take and eat this. This is my body, which is going to be broken. Take this into you and be strengthened, right? When we eat, we're strengthened, be regenerated, be nourished, be fed, be filled. And he's telling them this, right? Because back in the old days when they took the Passover dinner, it says that when they left Israel, when they followed what God told them to do, there was, they say, historians say there was somewhere between two to three million people. And it says that there was not one feeble among them. Because part of the promise of the Passover was that as they ate this meal in, it brought strength and it brought life to their bodies. And as long as they would do what God called them to do and they would trust Him and obey Him and be obedient, as long as they were obedient, up until the time they started to disobey Him and turn to other gods, there was not one feeble of, of millions of people, not one was feeble among them. And Jesus is saying, take this and eat this because this is my body. He's also prophesying of His death, right? Because He said... Blessed are thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe who, universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. In John 6.35, Jesus said this, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. So Jesus says, I am the bread of life, and then he sits down and thanks God that he brings forth bread from the earth. Because in three days, Jesus was going to be brought forth from the earth. He was going to be crucified and laid into rest in the ground, in the earth, and then God was going to bring him forth from the earth. And he's the whole time, he's declaring that what they've been prophesying for thousands of years is about to take place. People didn't even know what they were saying as they prayed these prayers. They didn't even understand that they were prophesying that there was a Messiah coming who was the bread of life who God would bring forth from the earth. And so Jesus is bringing everything to a close as he sits down to have this meal. You understand this meal is the ending of the old covenant. Never again would there be a Passover meal, which was a representation of their sin. From that day forward, they would do this and they would remember the Lamb and the new covenant every time they had a communion meal like this. And so when they gathered to do this, this was the last time because Jesus is telling them there's a new covenant that's come that I'm establishing. And so, he says it brings forth bread from the earth. Remember in John twelve twenty four, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. See, all these things that Jesus had been telling them over and over again. I am the bread of life. 
If you eat of me, you'll never be hungry again. Unless a, bra- a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it does, it does nothing. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus is about to go into the earth. He's about to die and be placed into the earth to bring forth much fruit. And so he's just all these things as we read through this end. It's so important we understand that Jesus is tying up all the loose ends and wanting them and wanting us as we read these words to understand what was going on because there's so much more than just here's some bread and here's some wine and this symbolizes this and that symbolizes that he's tying everything together and bringing everything to a close so that everything could be opened up to the new covenant so it says they took the cup and gave thanks and this is what he would have said blessed art thou O lord our god king of the universe creator of the fruit of the vine remember in john 15 15 i am the vine you are the branches he who abides in me and i in him he bears much fruit for apart from me you can do nothing jesus is the vine who the fruit is born from that we abide in And so he says to them, Blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. He's letting them know, you guys, listen, I'm the vine, and you guys are going to be in me, and you're going to bear much fruit. All these things he's bringing to a close for them. All these things he's revealing to them and showing them that of who he is and, and how everything they've been waiting for is being tied up and is being completed and fulfilled. And he's telling the disciples this. He says, my body's going to be broken. I'm going to be killed. He's, you're going to put me into the ground. The Father's going to bring me forth. And I'm going to die and my blood is going to be spilled onto the ground. And that's the blood that's in this cup. That's the new covenant that you're going to drink in and it's going to cover you for your sins. That never again are you going to have to go and find a lamb and the lamb have to be sacrificed because the lamb has come. Remember, one lamb for one family. And then now Jesus says, you are all one family. Paul writes, you are in 1 Corinthians 10, 15. I speak as to wise man. You judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. We who are many are now one body, and we all partake of one bread. Jews, Gentiles, everyone alike, it's all one family. No longer does, does my family have to go and get a lamb, and your family have to go and get a lamb, and Lisa's family, and Troy's family. And all these families have to go and get their own lamb, and, and every year have to sacrifice something and hope that the sacrifice was worthy. Jesus comes and says, I am the lamb, and I am the sacrifice, and he's found worthy by the priest because they couldn't get him to go back on anything that he said. He was who he claimed he was. He never backed down from it, even to the point of death. And they killed him and said, this is Jesus. Remember what Pilate wrote? This is Jesus, king of the Jews. And the Jews were upset and they wanted him to change it and say, this is Jesus who said he was the king of the Jews. And Pilate looked at them and said, I've written what I've written. Because Pilate had tested him himself and he understood, I cannot find any fault with this man. Pilate looked into his eyes and he understood. I believe Pilate became born again. I believe we'll see Pilate in heaven. I believe he knew who Jesus was and that's why he washed his hands of him and said, I have nothing to do with this because I've examined him the way the priest would have examined the lamb and I can't find any fault. The priest examined the lamb and if they could find no fault with the lamb, it was worthy of being sacrificed. He was examined by the king of the nation. He was examined by the priest and nobody could find any fault with him because he was the worthy lamb who was worthy to be sacrificed. And I believe Pilate knew that, and that's why he wrote, here is Jesus, King of the Jews. And he wouldn't change it. So Jesus institutes this. He said, whenever we get together, take a communion. Whenever we have a communion meal, that we remember that the body was broken and abused for our healing and our wholeness, and that the blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins. Remember the first time that someone gave something something to eat? What happened? Remember, it was the bride following the will of the enemy who gave to her husband, the bridegroom. And when he ate of it, sin enters the world and their eyes are open to shame, guilt, condemnation, and evil. The second time that this happens and changes everything is when the the bridegroom acting on the will of the father comes and gives to his bride and says, take and eat of this. And when they do, their eyes are open to righteousness, holiness, and truth. It's just everything that was old is now new. And Jesus brings it all full circle. That's why it's exciting to read the Old Testament. Because as you read through it, you see Jesus. Everything points to Him. And Jesus comes and fulfills all these things. Sin enters the world because a a bride gives to her bridegroom acting under the will of the enemy. And then life enters into the world when the bridegroom gives to the bride. We are the bride of Christ, the church, acting under the will of the Father. And as we eat of it, our eyes are closed to shame, condemnation, and sin, and all the things 
things that entered with the fall and our eyes are open to righteousness, truth, love, peace, holiness. That's good news. <laughs> that is good news. The gospel is such good news. It's such good news. And so now we get to the part of the instruction. So what does it look like for us today as we, as we, what we call take communion or as we share in a communion meal, a covenant meal? What does it look like? In 1 Corinthians 11, we'll start in verse, uh, uh, chapter 11, we'll start in verse 23. This is Paul writing to the church at Corinth. He says, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so that we will be, not be condemned along with the world. Okay, so, so the first part of it is pretty self-explanatory, right? Jesus takes the bread and says, this is my body, which is broken for you. Remember in Isaiah it says that he was bruised for our iniquities, that by his stripes we are healed, that his body was broken for us for our healing. And then he takes the cup and says, this is the new covenant in my blood. He's telling them the old covenant is ending, a new covenant is being established by the blood that I will shed, which takes the place and supersedes and is greater than all the bloods of bulls and goats, right? As we read in Hebrews. And he says, when, when you come together and you, and, and you, you celebrate with a communion meal, it'll no longer be the old covenant that you're eating and drinking into. It will be a new covenant that you're eating and drinking into, right? It's sealed of the blood that I'm going to shed that takes place once and for all. It says, and Paul says, as often, as often as you eat this and drink this, you proclaim the Lord's death. And we've turned this into a really somber thing, right? And communion traditionally has been like this really, really somber, sad time. And, 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 and there is a, a, a degree of reverence that we have when we reflect on what Jesus endured for us, when we reflect on the fact that he was beaten for us, that he was broken for us, that he was hung upon a cross, and that he shed his life's blood for the forgiveness of our sins as the perfect holy sacrifice. That there is a reverence that should come with that but he said as often as you do this you are proclaiming his death and we have to remember one thing that proclaiming his death is proclaiming our life that jesus did it for the joy set before him that he willingly gave up his life he said no man takes my life from me i lay it down for others I lay my life down. Others, this is something that Jesus did at following the will of the Father for the joy set before Him. And you cannot proclaim Jesus' death without proclaiming our life in Him because His death is what makes new life in Him possible. And that should bring some joy to us. And so, yeah, there should be a reverence that goes along with taking communion, but there should also be a joy, an unexplainable, unspeakable amount of joy as we reflect on the fact that we are actually eating into this new covenant, which is Jesus, which is us in Him, the Lamb in us, and us inside the Lamb. I in them, and you in me. And so don't turn this into a somber, sad thing where there is no joy, because if there's joy missing, it's because we're missing a part of that of His death, and that is that in His death I find new life. And so have reverence, but also have a joy, have an excitement about what Jesus came and did. And so Paul says, or Jesus said, when you do this, you are declaring my death until I return, right? And now we get to the part that that I think has has been maybe um, misrepresented at times and has been allowed to really scare us and has been used to, to scare people. Sometimes I've been scared by these verses before when someone said one, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. Examining yourself does not mean looking into my life to see if there's any sin and deciding whether I'm worthy to take communion based on whether there's sin in my life or not. That's not what that means. And it's been taught to us so many times that, well, before you take communion, you better make sure that you've confessed every one of your sins. And so quickly we go through a laundry list and make sure there's not something that I did that I didn't confess because I don't want to take communion unworthily. That has nothing to do with what he's talking about. That was what the old covenant required. 
See, the priests had to examine themselves and make sure that they were pure and holy before they went into the Holy of Holies and made sacrifice for the people because if they didn't and they were found unworthy, they would drop dead and they would have a rope tied around their ankle when they went in so that if they went in there and there was sin in their life and they weren't worthy of being in God's presence, when they fell dead and the bells stopped ringing, they had bells around the tassels of their garments, they would drag them out by the rope. See, that's the old covenant way of doing it, is examine yourself and make sure that you're good enough to go into the presence of God. The new covenant way of examining ourselves is examining to an understanding, am I in relationship with Christ? Have I accepted Him as my Savior? And does His blood cover all of my sin? Because if it does, then He says I'm worthy to go into His, into His presence. He says I'm good enough, not because of what I've done or haven't done, but because of His obedience, because of His righteousness, and because of the sacrifice that He made. In fact, to take communion wrongly now in the new covenant would be to do exactly what we've been taught to do a lot of times, and that is to examine ourselves and make sure that there's no sin. Because what you're saying is, God, I am worthy to receive from you based on my good behavior, based on my good works, based on what I've done. That's an unworthy way to receive communion, to receive the new covenant. Because I promise you, none of us can stand before him and say, I am worthy of the sacrifice of Jesus because of what I have or haven't done. Every one of us can stand before him and say, I'm worthy of the sacrifice of Jesus because of what he did. So don't ever be afraid to take communion because you, oh shoot, you know what? I sped on the way to church. Listen, if if, if you have sin in your life that needs to be confessed, by all means, confess it, right? Ask forgiveness, get it dealt with, get it cleared up. Not so that you become worthy then in God's eyes because Jesus came to take away the sin of the world because the punishment for your sin was laid upon him. He took the punishment for it. And when you accepted his forgiveness, you accepted forgiveness for everything you had done, everything that you will do. It doesn't change your standing with God. What it does is it affects you because you know what you've done. And so it keeps you from having right relationship and it keeps you from being able to stand before him and feel worthy of receiving from him. So go clear that up by all means. But don't stand there before you're about to take communion and judge whether or not you're worthy to take communion because of what you haven't done or did do. Well, I know a month ago I took communion, but in the last month, I did some stuff. (laughs) I'm going to pass this month. That's another thing. If you say, I can't take communion because of what I've done, whether you realize it or not, you're standing before God and you're saying, I am worthy to receive from you or I'm unworthy to receive from you because of my own actions. And that's why he says you're guilty of the body and blood of Jesus because you're not accepting the sacrifice that Jesus made when he gave his life on the cross because you're saying what Jesus did isn't enough for me. I'll stand on my own and I'll determine whether I'm worthy to receive or not based on how good or bad I've been. That's a little different than if you come up there and take that cup and you drink of that stuff and you've got sin in your life, you're drinking damnation to yourself. See, here's the thing. We should understand this. Nothing that Jesus said was to bring fear to us because he said that do not fear over and over again. He told us, don't fear. The same Jesus that said, don't hold anger in your heart towards somebody. The same Jesus that said, don't look at a woman with lust in your heart for her said, don't fear. And we treat don't fear as like, you know, just a suggestion. And we teach, take the others like they were commands, right? Don't fear was just as much a command as don't hold anger in your heart towards somebody. So if Jesus is telling us something, it's not to cause fear to us. And if we're in right standing with him, in covenant with him, everything that he says should bring excitement and joy to us. Because he's not giving you a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, of a sound mind. Why do you have power, love, and a sound mind when you're in covenant with him? Because you understand this is not about me. This is about what he did. I'm not standing here determining whether I'm worthy to receive based on my actions. I'm standing here determining that I am worthy to receive because you said that I am. Because of what Jesus did. And because of the covenant that I have. It says, but if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. If we judged, I'm going to go a little bit nerdy on you here. Is it the first time the word judged is used there in verse 31? It says, if we judge, that word is diacrino. It says, if we would diacrino ourselves, that word means to separate thoroughly. 
In other words, if we would separate ourselves thoroughly from this process when we examine it, in other words, I would stand there and understand there's nothing that I did right that makes me able to receive from Him. There's nothing that I did wrong that makes me unable to receive from Him because this has nothing to do with me and my righteousness and my goodness. It has everything to do with Him and His righteousness and His goodness. And He said that I'm able to come because I therefore, because we have such a one who is a high prince, uh, priest, Jesus, let us boldly enter into His throne room. The Word of God instructs me that because of Jesus, because He stands forever, because He gave His life, and He's perfect, I don't have to be perfect. I am perfected by Him. And it's nothing to do with me. So it says, if we would separate ourselves thoroughly, hold on, I'm going to find myself in my notes, we would not be judged. The second time that word judged is used there is a totally different word. And if you just read through this in the English, you would probably miss this. But it's a Greek word, krino, which means tried, condemned, and punished. So listen to what it says. If we separated ourselves thoroughly, we would not be tried, condemned, and punished. If we would understand that this is nothing to do with me and my worthiness to receive because of what I've done, we don't stand before Him and are tried, condemned, and punished. Because if I make communion and my ability to receive it about what I've done right, then I have to take punishment when I do something wrong. Because Jesus said, if you live by the sword, you die by the sword. With the same measure that you measure, it's measured to you. And so if I stand there and say, today I'm able to take communion, because since the last time I took communion, I've been a pretty good person, that means when I do something wrong, I stand before Him and I'm judged. Because I haven't separated myself from the process. I've made it all about me. And whether I'm able to receive, worthily or unworthily, based on what I have or haven't done. There's one way. That, that keeps you from being able to receive when we take communion, when we share in a communion meal, when we share in a covenant meal. And that is this. If you have not accepted the gift of salvation that Jesus Christ died on a cross and you haven't made Him the Lord and Savior of your life. Because if you haven't done that, you are unworthy because you've said, I don't need what you've done. I'm good enough on my own. See, this is what the whole thing is about. It's getting us to understand that none of us wants to stand before God and say, you know what? I know He shed His blood. I know His body was broken. But I'm pretty good. I deserve to partake in this because I've, I've been a pretty good boy. And some of those other heathens, they may need what He did, but I'm pretty good on my own. In the same way, it's to keep us from disqualifying ourselves and standing there and saying, I'm unworthy to receive from you, Father God, because of the things that I've done. Because, yeah, Jesus shed his blood and, yeah, Jesus' body was broken and beaten, but you didn't know how bad I was going to be. And you might have forgot about this and you might have held a little bit of that judgment, a little bit of that condemnation. You might have, when it says that he was punished and that he took all of my sin upon him, it was everything but that one thing. You didn't know I was going to do that, God. And since I did that, I'm not worthy to receive. See, this verse is not to make us afraid. It's to keep us from ever getting into self-righteousness where we feel like we stand before God and we're graded based on whether we have or haven't been good. And getting us to understand we stand before Him only good because we're covered by the blood of Jesus. Only good because He became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Not so you can act like the righteousness of God in Christ. Because Jesus didn't act sinful so that you could act righteous. He became sin so that you could become righteous. That's an important distinction to make because if you've become righteous, it's not something that you get up every morning and it's determined based on your behavior. You have become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Your sin doesn't change that fact. It just hurts because it's no longer who you are. And it makes you look like something that you're not. Before you were born again, the best you could do is act like you were holy. Now that you're born again, the worst you can do is act like you're not. It was an act to be good before you were born again. Now it's an act to act like you're not. That's why Paul said to the church at Corinth, why are you acting like mere humans? In other words, you guys are born again. Why are you acting like something you're not? You're acting like mere humans. You're not acting like who you are. You're not being who you are. You're acting like you're mere humans. That word act in the Greek, hypocrite, means playing a part that you're not. So he says to them, you guys are being hypocritical. You're no longer just human beings. You're actually new creations in Christ filled with the Spirit of God, but you're playing the role of somebody who's just a normal human being. Then he says, 
And, 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 and hear me say this. This is why we have to understand that we have to take everything that Paul wrote here with what Paul wrote in the rest of the Gospels. Romans 8.1 says that what? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. In other words, if you're in Christ, there's no chance that you can stand before God and be condemned. So there's no chance that you can stand before God and receive unworthily as long as you're in Christ. And it has nothing to do with your good behavior. And he says, because of this, many of you are sick and even die because you don't rightly discern the body of Christ. Notice he doesn't say that you don't rightly discern the blood. So I think that we get him dying and shedding his blood for the forgiveness of our sins, but a lot of times we don't get that his body was beaten and bruised for so much more than just the forgiveness of our sins. Paul says, because you don't rightly discern the body. And some people have said, well, that means that you have, you have things against you know, the, the church, the body of Christ. That's not what he was talking about there because the Greek word that he uses there is the Greek word soma, not ekklesia. Ekklesia is the body of Christ. It's the gathering, a solemn assembly of Christ. Soma is a noun of a root word, sozo, which means saved, healed, and delivered. He says, because you don't understand the totality and the fullness of the salvation, the healing, and the deliverance that Jesus' body was broken for, some of you are sick and even die. Notice he doesn't say all of you that are sick and die don't understand this, because there's people who are battling against an illness, there's people who are struggling with something, and they understand and they believe and they're waiting on God for healing. But he says, some of you are sick and die because you don't understand the salvation and the healing and the deliverance that Jesus' body was broken to bring. You understand the blood. You understand that He died for the forgiveness of your sins and you've received salvation. You are born again. But you don't understand the soma, the noun for the Greek word sozo. You don't understand the healing and deliverance that's found in His body. And communion and taking in is to remind us that Jesus' body was beaten and broken for so much more than just our sin. That it says that He became poor so that we might become rich. That our poverty, it says the scorn of us was upon Him. In other words, the wrath and the anger and the hate of people He took upon Himself. It says that for, yeah, his, his body was bruised for our iniquities and by His stripes, by the stripes on His back, the beating by the Romans that striped His back with bloody stripes, we are healed. And by His blood, our sin is forgiven. It's so much more than just having your sin forgiven so that one day you can go to heaven. And because you don't understand this, Paul said, that's the reason that some of you are sick and even die. Paul said it. If we would judge ourselves as worthy to receive because Jesus said that we are, because we're new creations in Him, we could stand there and joyfully take communion every single time and never have fear and never disqualify ourselves from any of the blessings that He died for us to have. If we would understand that this is that that all these things, and I'm gonna I'm gonna close up with this, but if we would understand that this covenant with Jesus, that this final step of covenant that we're talking about, that all of it was to bring us to a place of being one with Him. Jesus says He's in the garden. Read John 16 and 17 all the time because it's Jesus praying for you. Because He says, My prayer is not only for them, talking about the disciples, but for all who would believe their testimony. So Jesus, when He's in the garden praying, He's literally on His knees praying for you and for me who have come to believe because of the testimony of the disciples. And Jesus said in John seventeen twenty two, The glory which You've given Me, I've given to them that they may be one just as we are one. I and them and You and Me. That they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that You sent Me and loved them even as You have loved Me. I and them and them in Me. I and them, you and me, God saying, listen, I want there to be such a unity between them that when they sit down and they take this meal, they realize they're taking me into them because I took them into me. Because if any man is a new creation in Christ, Jesus took the price so that you could be in Him, in covenant with Him, in relationship with Him, seated with Christ in heavenly places. It's about establishing a relationship with you that was God's idea. This is why it's so hard for me to believe that people don't think that this is the truth. Because if man made this up, it would have been way harder on our end and way easier on God's end. 
Right? We would have made it all about something we have to do. There would have been a mountain we had to climb, an eagle we would have had to pluck feathers from, tea would have had to be made, and you know, all this, this this is this is what humanity does. We want something that we can accomplish so that we can say, I have this because I did this. And you know what the truth of the matter is? Is so many people would climb that mountain and kill that eagle and make that tea if you told them that's what it took. But so many people are unwilling to believe that it's as simple as simply believing in Jesus and the sacrifice that he made on the cross. If it was about climbing a mountain, there would be businesses at the bottom of it that shuttled you to the top and they'd have eagles chained to trees. You'd be able to buy feathers. There'd be all this stuff set up, right? Because everybody would want to do it so that they could say, well, I know because I did this. And the truth about the gospel is, is all you can say is, I know because he said this. I know because he did this. And I know because I've trusted in that and I know whom I believed and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. This covenant relationship was his idea. He wanted a relationship with you that was so secure that there is no separating you from him, that you don't stop and Christ start and Christ stop and you start, but that you're actually knit together, formed together as one person that nothing can separate. We're going um, to go out and enjoy the cookout. And this is what I want us to do. Rather than having just a, a little cracker and a little shot of juice, and doing it, and, we, and we've done it that way before, and we've baked muffins, and we've baked bread, and we've done all kinds of different communions. We had a communion meal where we had everything they would have had at the Last Supper, and, and we sat around and ate it together, and that was awesome too. And who knows what we'll do the next time, but, but this is something that I would like to, to have us do this time, if we could. And that is, as you get your food, go back to a table and sit with some people, whether you're sitting with your friends, family, whoever it is, but sit with some people, you know, sit with your family and have some friends maybe. And before you guys eat and before you drink, Just talk about the fact that you're actually taking in the Lamb of God. That we are one family, that we eat from one loaf, as as Jesus said, or as Paul said. And talk about what Jesus has done and what it means to you to be born again, to be a new creation in Him. And then eat together the way the disciples, the way the Israelites would have ate together and drink together. And as you drink, realize we're taking in the new covenant which was established by His blood that was shed so that our sins could be forgiven and we could stand before Him faultless, holy, perfect, blameless, pure. Take communion at your tables together. And rather than just making it a one thing, a thing that we do for a second and then we're done and we get up and we walk out the doors, let's actually sit and enjoy the fact that we are a body of Christ. That we're a family of believers. That, that, that none of you hardly knew each other before you ended up here together. And yet God saw fit to draw us all to this place together. To be one body together with each other. A family of God. That you play a part in here. That you're important. You're not just here to fill a pew. You're not just... Or ch- chair. I'm, that's an old saying. We can't even say that anymore, right? That was the first thing we did when, when we took over this church. Is we got rid of the pews and brought in chairs. I just like them better. They're more comfortable. They get people to sit closer together. You guys wouldn't be sitting that close together if there was a pew there. But it's okay if there's a chair because the chair tells you where to sit, right? Then you don't have to feel weird and creepy when you scoot over next to somebody and sit that close. In a pew, it's weird. It is. Like, if someone sits that close to you in a pew, it's like, dude... But in a chair, it's all right because the chair determines where you sit, right? But you're a body, you're, you're, a, you're a member of a family that God has brought together and is knitting together for a reason. That you don't come here just to receive like a bird with its mouth open, that you come here full of the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead. And there's every chance that as you walk through the doors of the church in the morning, God sent you here to find somebody He wants you to pray for, speak into their life, encourage, be a friend to, lift up, Help, get to know, build relationship with, be there for. Just like when you walk through the door and you've had just a rough week, there's every opportunity that somebody's going to be here to do those things for you. And we're called to encourage each other, like as Troy stood up last week. So amazing, that, that vision that he shared with us. So encouraging. We all play a part. I want us to think about that as we're eating this meal today, as a, just as a communion meal, as a common union meal that we're united together by Christ, and that we're a family. So God, I thank You for who You are. God, I thank You for Your Word. God, I thank You that when we see Your Word, 
in light of the gospel and in totality of who you are and what you've said, that it doesn't bring fear to us, God, that it actually brings strength to us, that it brings peace to us. God, that we don't have to worry that we stand before you to be tried, punished, and condemned because we have thoroughly separated our good works from our ability to receive. We've thoroughly separated ourselves from the process of salvation and realized that it was your work, it was your hand, it was your idea, and that all we have done is respond to your great love. God, that never again will we think about whether we can take communion based on who we are, God, in ourselves, but based on who we are in Christ, and that we stand before you righteous, holy, and acceptable because we're in Christ and he sits at your right hand, righteous, holy, and acceptable. I thank you for this covenant that we have with you, God, that it was your idea, that you've knit us together, that you've joined us, God, that we are not separatable, that it is not no longer me and a little bit of Jesus, God, but that it's Christ in me and we're in you and we have this covenant relationship that's inseparable because of who you are and who you've called us to be. God, I ask that our whole perspective, even as we reflect on what we've been learning over the past few months, would change, God that we would see you as our source, that we would see you as our Father, that we would see you, God, as our protector and our provider, that we would want to trust and obey, not because of fear, God, but because we understand that you're good and that your plans for us are to bless us and not harm us, to prosper us and give us hope. I thank you for that. I've asked that, God, that you would bless the food that we're about to take in, that you bless the people of this church who prepared it, God, and the people who came today, God, that that I speak blessing over every person and every family gathered here today, God, that your love would just be poured out upon us, that we would, our cup would overflow, God, that we would walk around just oozing and leaking the aroma of heaven wherever we go, God, that we could love people even when they act unlovable, because you loved us when we acted unlovable, God, that we can see through the things that people have done and see who they are who you created them to be. And God, that we could speak to them and treat them not based on their actions, but based on who you say they are. That we can love unconditionally. I thank you for that. I thank you for who you are. I thank you for this church. I thank you for your church. In Jesus' name, amen.